So this is week two of our new sermon series called We Believe. It's a study in the Nicene Creed. We really just want to dive in and try to explore the core theological tenets of the Christian faith, hopefully with an edge to see how we are united together through Jesus. A lot of times you'll see churches have these big walls that are in between other believing groups based on minor differences, and we kind of want to do our best to chip away at those walls and celebrate the unity that we have through Jesus. Um, So this evening, we will be looking at a passage, sort of, in Matthew chapter 6. One thing that I've learned from this, uh, the preparation going into this study as well, is this is not quite as easy as just trucking through the book of Mark. Um, Each week I knew what the passage was going to be, and I knew how to study, and knew how to prepare. What I'm finding in this particular series is we're having these big themes, these big topics, and to try to find a text that's relevant uh, is not so much difficult, but to, to try to find a text that encapsulates the fullness of what we're talking about is impossible. Um, so instead of taking this passage and completely ripping it apart and trying to figure out some application for us today, we're going to use this as a springboard, a jumping off point into our discussion. So this is Matthew chapter 6. This is from the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in verse 5. It says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray... Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins." This is the word of God for the people of God. So the Nicene Creed begins with these powerful words we talked about last week, we believe, joining many voices in our context from many different denominations and many different backgrounds, many different cultures in this strong chorus of Christian unity. We believe in these truths. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. That's a lot to unpack in the course of one, what I always shoot for, a 25-minute sermon, and you can time me, and you will see how I never quite get at that 25-minute mark. Billy's looking at his clock already. Come on, Bill. Um, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty. We're going to talk about the truths uh, surrounding the Trinity later. So today, I really just want to focus on this description. We believe in God, the Father. Now, these conversations surrounding the fatherhood of God evoke all sorts of different experiences and background and the the things that we bring to the table, I think, can be very clearly seen. 
On my Facebook page a couple days ago, I asked the, the vague question of best TV dads of all time. And I received a whole laundry list of different responses. And you could tell the different cultural divides between some of the responses. I got some things like, Father Knows Best. I don't even know what his name was, but that guy from Father Knows Best, I'm sure somebody in the crowd knows who he is. And we also heard a lot of Michael Landon from Little House on the Prairie. That was not so much my language. I never liked to watch Little House on the Prairie. It just seemed kind of boring to me. But what I lived for as a kid was Full House, which is interesting because it's come back into being quite the, the trendy thing. And now all of the young people say, I watch these shows on Nick at Night. Well, we were there, you know, the old people. We were there as they were coming out. Um, and I remember, you know, every episode, it would be that 22-minute that beautiful, tightly packed saga of one of the kids doing something crazy and then cue the music at the end. Danny Tanner would come in and sit down on the bed and be like, listen, Michelle, um, you need to learn how to share your food with the dog Comet. I'm not sure, but the, the music would be queued up and it'd be this, this moment. And even as a nine, 10, however old I was, like, oh yeah, it's a sweet, sweet moment. You know, it's just a nice family. Okay, I don't know. Um, TGIF was this block of four shows on Friday nights, and one of the other shows on that um, schedule was Family Matters, and some people talked about Carl Winslow. Um, he was a cop in Chicago and just an all-around great guy. Now, what I was surprised to know, and you'll note, yeah, I'm kind of getting into this because I enjoy TV, so just bear with the long introduction here for a minute, but what I was surprised to see is no one, not one person, said Uncle Phil from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air which is sad, you know? In West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground, you know, he was spending most of his days and he was going out to hang out with his Uncle Phil. But nobody said it. And that, you all know, I saw it even on my Facebook feed this past week, and I hate the fact that I'm referencing Facebook twice in seven minutes. I'm sorry, it dates me. But they were showing that one scene where Will was waiting for his dad to show up and he didn't, and then Uncle Phil, like, fathered him, you know? and it was a beautiful television moment. Some of you guys were just out there, and it was Homer Simpson, and I just threw in there for the sake of uh, comprehensiveness, I put Peter Griffin in there as well. Um, not a great dad. Now, Phil Dunphy, I can get on board with, okay? Although this, I think, demonstrates something about our, our time in, in this cultural context where he's kind of a buffoon yet people love him. He's really funny, really, really sweet, whatever. Um, a couple, I'm, and I'm nearing the end of this very long introduction, okay, just so stick with me here. Uh, the Parenthood family, you got Zeke Braverman, you got Adam Braverman, uh, even Crosby's a pretty good dad, and so is Joel. But the best TV dad of all time, without discussion, without equivocation, without any sort of qualification, has to be Coach Eric Taylor of Friday Night Lights. Has to be. Not only is he, is he fathering and parenting Julie, his crazy daughter, he's also, and that other little kid that they had later on, spoiler alert there, um, but he's also fathering all of these football players that are getting into all sort of high school hijinks. And Coach Eric Taylor is bringing them back together. The point of all of this stuff is we have examples of dads that we see in entertainment and in media. And for some of us, that might even be the comparison that we have to our dads or to the dads that we want to be. I've said on multiple occasions that I aspire to be Eric Taylor. And Kate, I think on multiple occasions, has said she aspires to be Tammy Taylor. 
but we also have this blank canvas that represents your experiences as a person that factors into how you understand the fatherhood of God. And for some of you, when we talk about God as father and you think about your dad, it doesn't necessarily bring good memories to the fore. It might even be something that makes you kind of back away a little bit from the Christian faith because you don't want to have a dad like that. And if God is being packaged to you as the father figure, the one who potentially was uh, an authoritarian in your life, in some extreme cases, maybe even brought abuse. And this is not something that's uh, taken away from a Christian context. There's a good number of people that have been raised by uh, professing Christian fathers that have gone through really difficult um, relationships with, with their dads. So even thinking about God as the Father Almighty, it is difficult for people to, to get on board with if that's your experience. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Now what I want to do tonight is just in a very brief few minutes is try to unpack some of the baggage that we bring to the text when we hear those words, okay? I think that it might be uh, important for us to begin with a word about metaphors. Theologians will say that God is infinite, and we as created human beings are finite. We have a very noticeable beginning, and we will have a very noticeable end, yet God is eternal. God is, um, in some senses of the term, timeless. He is one that has been there forever and will be forever. The way that we describe who God is relies upon metaphors. In a sense, this is the best that we can do to try to unpack who God is. And what we have are things like God as Father, God as Defender, God as Strong Tower, God as Shield, God as Shepherd. All of these things aren't quite capable of describing who God is in his complete fullness, but these are the terms that we use. I think it's important for us to begin there because sometimes we put too much stock into these terms, so much so uh, that we might begin to think about God in a way that's not necessarily accurate. Uh, one scholar, Luke Timothy Johnson, says, even when we with great joy call upon God as our Father, we must remember that before the mystery of God, all language must eventually fall away and all worship must fall silent to be true. All language must eventually fall away because we cannot, with our own words, describe in a comprehensive way who God is. He has revealed himself to us, yes, but in some senses of the term, he is unfathomable. We can't understand him to his fullness. For some of us, God is Morgan Freeman in a white suit. For some of us, God is this picture of something that's, that's less than who God actually is. So what we need to do is a bit of reconstruction this evening and just try to build up some of these images um, from the Bible about what God's fatherhood actually means for us. And I want to just kind of break down a couple of different categories that have brought some um, misunderstanding to the, to the fore here. 
I had this slide, and as I was thinking about it in my study, I thought, well, that's new. I'm not sure if this is something that normal people would do, but God as Father for feminists. Uh, give me a, a couple minutes on this. There's some folks that approach this text with the idea that if God is male, then male is God. And they use this scheme in order to assert their superior status or dominance over women. So some people have approached this fatherhood of God with that sort of uh, experience or understanding in the back of their mind and, and try to like stiff arm it a bit. God cannot be father. So some feminist scholars have rejected these sorts of terms and what some of them want to do is just completely throw them out or fill in other uh, descriptors for God like God as mother. And we've talked about this. Our Mother's Day sermon was the maternal images of God. You can listen to it on our uh, podcast channel if you would like to do that. Um, But there are texts within the Bible that describe God in different ways than perhaps the ways that you uh, heard of God as, as a kid. This is from Isaiah chapter 49. It says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even though these women may forget, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Throughout the book of Isaiah, specifically from 40 through chapter 66, we see these images of God not as the patriarchal father, but as the nurturing, loving mother. And I at least want us to see that as we begin to recite these words in the creed, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Yes, we do, but we understand that this term, it is not something that encapsulates who God is, and it actually allows for other sorts of descriptions to be used as well. Think for a moment about the idea that you have of what a good dad is in your mind. I hope that that picture includes a dad who can hug his children and love them, provide for them, yes, keep them safe, yes, but also nurture them, not forget them, not abandon them, to be present, to be to be one that can be counted on, not just in this macho guy sort of thing where it's like we don't show anybody our emotions because that's not what men do. The image of God that we have throughout the Old Testament seems to challenge that a bit, where perhaps what a 21st century American understanding of what a real man is is actually selling real men short. And when we take that and we import that into God, he becomes the angry guy in the sky who doesn't necessarily mourn with you when you mourn because he's ticked. That's not the biblical image here. So while some feminists might want to reject these um, masculine descriptors completely, I do think they're at least bringing some important things for us to consider. God as Father does not, especially our image of Father, does not encapsulate in his fullness who God actually is. So we need to begin to reconstruct. We need to maybe even begin to learn from these feminist scholars who want us to see God in his more of a a, a full way. We also see God as Father for kids with bad examples. And I mentioned this a few minutes ago where when you grow up, with a dad that beats you, when you grow up with a dad that neglects you, when you grow up with a dad that does not support you, when you grow up with a dad who is absent or who is authoritarian or one who is strict and, and 
the disciplinarian in the family. You know, I used to think when I was a kid that it would be really neat to be married and have my wife say to the kids, you wait till your father gets home. I thought that would be neat because then I would be like, that's stupid. A, because discipline is a team effort. And B, I don't want my kids to be afraid of me. Yet for some of you, the picture that you have of dad has been so difficult and so, for lack of a better term, bad, that that's the image that you import to God. So we have to do a bit of reconstruction there. God is father for kids with no example. We live in a society where it's not too strange for people to grow up in a home without a dad or a father figure. So this concept of God as father is so foreign to you because you don't have an example that really carries any weight because there was no one in your home or in your life that was being a dad. So we have to reconstruct some things. Now I also know that especially as I look around the room, your picture frame is not filled with these bad images of of dad or you don't have a lot of these stories or examples. For some of you, your experience is one where God as father You can relate to that because your dad has been awesome. Your dad has been present. Your dad has been at all your games. Your dad has been one who celebrates your your good grades or your lack thereof. The one who like puts his arm around you and is is with you in, in the midst of things. The one that you cannot wait for him to walk you down the aisle or have your first dance with. The one that wants to teach you everything he knows. I don't know, fill in the blank there of whatever it is that you think dad should be and, and you've, you've had that. One scholar says, it should go without saying that fatherhood can be associated with notions of love, closeness, and protection across cultures and languages as well. So fatherhood is not all patriarchy and power, and he is specifically kind of um, pushing back against some of this feminist critique. To get away with, or to do away with the the language of God as father would, would be selling God short for who he is. Not every father is an authoritarian figure who wants to lord their power over their subjects slash children. Sometimes we have images of dad that are worth seeing. Kind of like when Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. There's some dads that are following Christ and setting an example of that for their children in a way that is awesome. But here, we need to still do some some repackaging. So I want to look at two texts in the Old Testament. Actually, three, but two of them are a bit more weighty. Uh, This is Hosea chapter 11. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. This is God going back to the story of the Exodus where people are in bondage and they're oppressed and God uh, leads them out, delivers them from their oppressors. But the more they were called, he says, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, to the, to the um, foreign gods, to the idols, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. This is another word for Israel. This is God just basically saying that his people, Israel, have gone in the wrong direction. Yet it was I who taught them to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. How can I give up on you, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? 
This is within a prophetic text where people are facing oppression and, and God is saying, I cannot completely wash my hands of you because I am your father. I will not and cannot divorce you. We are bonded together in relationship. Some folks back in the day, uh, they would struggle with Old Testament texts, and there's a lot of Old Testament texts that are still kind of difficult, um, but one guy in particular named Marcion basically took out the entire Old Testament because in his mind, the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath and anger and conquest and military exploits. And while those stories are in there, we also have these images here where God is demonstrating himself to be one of love and commitment and passion, even when his kids are going in the opposite direction, even when they don't realize that it was he who fed them and nurtured them and sustained them. He can't give up on them. This text from Psalm 68 says, Sing to God, sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. There's a lot of really fun ancient Near Eastern stuff there, but from the looks on your face, you're not quite ready tonight. Okay, so we'll just, we'll, we'll save that for another time. If you ever want to go have coffee and talk about the ancient Near Eastern images here in Psalm 68, please take me up on that. Somebody. Please. Thank you. Okay. Um, Verse 5, a father to the fatherless, defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. This image of God being a father to the fatherless. These Old Testament images are beautiful and powerful and robust in their meaning. God is not the angry guy in the sky that just wants to punish you. God is the one who wants to nurture you and love you and to be a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows, the one who protects and sets the lonely people in families. And I don't know if that necessarily is just limited to biological loneliness. For some of you, as you sit in here, you are the lonely ones that need to be set within a family, perhaps this church family. And I hope that the Christians in the room will see that and be able to respond to that and let God use us in and through that, but God is functioning as a father to the fatherless. One more Old Testament text is Isaiah 64. It says, yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. Don't be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Here they're using this image of God as father as we need to obey God the Father. But that, that line there, we are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. These images are, are potent and they're worth our consideration, understanding who God is when we say we believe in one God, the Father, and all the stuff that that encapsulates for us. We are well beyond Phil Dunphy and Homer Simpson and the old dude from Father Knows Best into something that is good. When we sing, you are a good, good father, I don't necessarily know if we often bring everything uh, to the table with that. God as a father is primarily uh, revealed by Jesus. Those Old Testament images, they're not, there's not a whole lot of them where God is spoken of as father. Some people would say that's because it's assumed, but either way, in that context, it's not uh, 
a, a metaphor or a description that's used a whole lot. What we see as believers is Jesus revealing the Father, and he does so by consistently referring to my Father, my Father, my Father, my Father, my Father, Father, Father. Like Jesus is the one who reveals who this God is and brings in a different way God as Father um, for our consideration. And one of the most notable stories when Jesus is describing the characteristics of God the Father is in this well-known story of the prodigal son. And I just want to rehearse this in 15 seconds for you. Don't time me, Billy, because it won't be 15 seconds, okay? There's two sons, and the youngest goes to his dad and says, Dad, I want my inheritance, which at the time is code for, hey, Dad, I wish you were dead. I'd rather have your stuff than be here with you. So let's just go ahead and get on with it. So dad says, okay, so he divvies up the stuff and gives uh, the younger son his inheritance, and he goes off, and you know the story, he squanders it, doing whatever it is that he's doing, fill in the blank, don't, probably impure, so avert to a different story. He goes and he uh, squanders the, the money, and then he finds himself working for this farmer, and he's in the pig pen, and he's thinking to himself, if I could just go home and get the scraps from dad, then everything would be better than this. This is the worst state of affairs that I could possibly be in. So he works up the courage to go home. And the way that Jesus tells the story is when dad, who's on the, the porch in my retelling, sees the kid from far away, he takes off and runs after him. And when the kid starts launching into the speech of, hey dad, I'm really sorry, can I just be your servant? It kind of gets cut off because Dad's taking off the robes and putting it on him and taking off the ring and putting it on him and setting up this big banquet feast for him. And what we see here is an image not necessarily of God as one who is wrathful and angry, but one who is forgiving and loving and merciful. And whatever the pig pen of your life is, however you have stiff-armed God and says, give me whatever it is that you got and I want to go the other way, whatever we have said or done to get into that place, we often forget that when we approach, we will be met with open arms and loving forgiveness. What we see here in these stories are important for us because we know God as Father because Jesus calls him Father, reveals himself as God's Son, and through the gift of the Holy Spirit enables us to share in that filial relationship through adoption. Do you catch that? Through Jesus, we are able to become sons and daughters of the Most High God. Through Jesus, we are able to experience relationship with a dad who loves us and cares for us and wants to nurture us and be present for us in the midst of the lowest lows and the highest highs. Through Jesus, we are able to be embraced and given a seat at the table, to be clothed in robes and given a ring we are able to become children. So yes, as we look through the text and we see these images of God, we see him as defender, we see God as shield, we see God as strong tower, we see God as shepherd, we see God as mother, and we see God as our Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be his name. 
And when we mindlessly pray that prayer and when we mindlessly repeat these words of the creed, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, what we do at times is we limit the character of God to just one small piece and perhaps even the wrong piece. Forgetting all the while that through Jesus we are invited into family. There's one text in 1 John that says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Sometimes Christian music is really hokey. I know it and you know it. And sometimes we hear a song a thousand times and it just gets played to death. And that's kind of where I am with good, good father. Okay, I'm just gonna be honest with you. But that chorus is powerful and it's a liturgy that I need to keep repeating. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. See what great love the Father has lavished on you. That you should be called a son or a daughter of the Most High God, and that is what you are. It's not what your parents say. It's not what your ex-boyfriend or girlfriend says. It's not what your spouse says. It's not what your teachers say or your coaches say or all these people that might be putting you down. Do not forget your identity, Christian cliche warning, your identity as rooted in Jesus but cut through the fact that you may have heard that 50,000 times and actually begin to recapture what it means. You are a son or a daughter. Live in that confidence, live in that freedom, live in that goodness. We believe in one God, the Father, Almighty, my Father, your Father. We come back to this. This picture frame here with images of your biological dad, your stepdad, the person that fathered you, the TV people that we talked about. We also have within this frame your conception of who God is. And I hope that this evening we can begin to move beyond the cliches, the thoughtlessness, and begin to wrestle with a God who is so concerned in you that he would allow his son to be sacrificed. A God that is so concerned in you that he is present with you in the midst of the darkness, a God that is so concerned in you that when you turn from your pig pen and you follow after him, he will leave his porch and hunt you down and wrap you up in his arms. A God that is so invested in you that there is nothing that you can do to separate yourself from his radical and passionate love. That, friends, is part of who you are. And I hope that we begin to live in light of that together. That wherever we might be, that we can claim that for ourselves as we say we believe in one God, the Father, Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And that guy loves me.
I hope that we can begin to live in light of that and to be transformed by it each and every day.